0: Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this place. For those gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into uh, your living room or your dining room, wherever you happen to be. At uh, the end of that video, you hear the birds. Is it just me or I'm always like, where are they? Like, anyway. but. Um, just my fear. We're going to talk about fear today, but uh, maybe not of birds, but we'll get there. But um, this morning, uh, we are continuing this series on the life of Abraham. And so just really excited that I get the privilege of opening up God's word with you all. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie. I'd love to get the chance to get introduced, connect with you after the service. Uh, this series through this life of Abraham is focused on this idea of a field guide to loving God. Like the thing that we're called to in this world is to actually love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Abraham, in looking at his life, this ancient story that we began several weeks ago, 11, 12 weeks ago now, um, helps us in a couple different ways. One, at times we see in the life of Abraham, oh man, look at, he's getting it right. He's following the Lord. He's being a blessing to the nations. He's just, even despite circumstances that would say maybe he shouldn't trust God anymore. Like he's, he's moving forward. He's moving ahead. He's blessing people. He's rescuing people. And it's like, way to go, Abraham, right? And I also, though, said throughout this series that one of the things we see is not just a good example, but we also see times where it's like, oh, Abraham, really? Again, like you're doing that, like there's some cringeworthy moments. Um, And if you're wondering, well, which are we in this morning? It's the latter. Okay, Um, it's something that we've seen in the life of Abraham actually already. So if you were here early in the series and I start reading this, you might be like, hey, wait, haven't we heard this before? But it's a different account, and yet it's the same, all right? And so this morning, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 20. There's 18 verses this morning that we're going to cover. So I would encourage you to do this. I want you to hear, have God's word in front of you. So if you brought a Bible, get that out. Open up an app on your phone. Use the the Bibles that are in the the pew backs. Or you can go to cplife.church, and you'll see an image there that says sermon notes. You can click that, and the text will be there. There's space to take notes, stuff that'll be on the slides, is included there as well. But Genesis chapter 20, 18 verses, we'll work through this account this morning to help us as we are people that are called to love God. What does this account have to teach us about what that could look like and how our God loves us, who's freed us, who continues to pursue us even when we mess up? Genesis chapter 20 says this. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev, and he settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, you are about to die. If God comes to you in the middle of the night and says this, obviously it's intense, right? So, you are about to die because of the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. And so he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation, even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called all his servants together and personally told them all these things and the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and on my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech also asked Abraham, what made you do this? Verse 11, Abraham replied, I thought there's absolutely no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, Show your loyalty to me, that wherever we go, and say about me, He's my brother. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds, male and female slaves, and he gave them to Abraham, and he returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Look, my land is before you, settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, Look, I'm giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female slaves so that they could bear children for the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So this is the word of the Lord for us this morning that this account from thousands of years ago, I believe wholeheartedly has much to communicate to us in this place on the 1st of May in 2022. In order to help us sort of see this, I think we need to kind of zoom out though for a moment to kind of ask, like, hey, where have we been in this series? Where does this fit within the, the broader story? What are some themes that we should be paying atten- attention to? And so to help us with that, I wanted to call to your attention a, a story that perhaps you're familiar with. Um, there is a philosopher and mathematician, so right away some of you are like, oh, that's my guy. Most of us are like, whatever, all right? But the mathematician philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal, and for the first, I believe, 31 years of his life, this brilliant man wanted nothing to do with God, all right? He lived in the the mid-1600s, all right? But in 1654, he had an encounter with the living God that would radically shape his entire life that eight years after this encounter with the living God, he actually passed away. And his servant, one of his servants there in the house, was cleaning up after him, helping to get things, you know, things in order in, in the home. And he discovered there was this jacket that Blaise Pascal would wear most every day. And as he was gathering up the jacket and perhaps getting it ready maybe to fold or what, whatnot, he noticed on the inside that there was this piece of paper and on the piece of paper, a cross was drawn and there in the, with the very, you know, like the penmanship of Blaise Pascal, there were these particular words that were written. They were words that had been penned eight years prior and that every time he wore this jacket as it would close, it would be close to his chest, close to his heart as this reminder of the living God who would pursue a man who wanted nothing to do with God. This God that would come and reveal himself to Blaise Pascal. And here's a portion of what it said on this particular piece of paper. They're sewn, he'd taken the time to sew it into his jacket. It said this In the year of the Lord, 1654, Monday, November 23, from about half past 10 in the evening until half past 12, fire. So he's thinking of this encounter, and then he begins to write these words, it continues, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of philosophers nor of the scholars, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and thy God. Thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is to be found only by the ways taught in the gospel. Greatness of the soul of man, righteous father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And then he concludes, joy, 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 oh, tears of joy. And it was these words that he wanted to keep close to his chest, close to his heart every single day so that he would not forget what God had done in his life. And the story of Abraham and the story of anyone who is a follower of God, so if you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, this too, though the details might be different, the day of the week, the time, the year, all of that, but the storyline is the same, that God has come on a rescue mission, that God has chosen you, that God has picked you to be a recipient of his grace. That's what we see in the life of Abraham. We were to travel all the way back to the end of Genesis 11. It's a man who is lost. He's a pagan. He is not worshiping the one true God. And God says, you, come and follow me. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have descendants upon descendants upon descendants. You will literally change the world. You're going to have all this land, this land that I'll give you. Just come and follow me at a time when Abraham had no land. His wife was barren, no children. Now, I say all of that just as we start out and as we kind of zoom out for a moment. Just know this. God is in the business of forming us for joy. This is what he's doing in the life of Abraham. That ever since the garden, all right, where we had perfect communion with God in the Garden of Eden, and when we were banished because of our sin and rebellion, God has been looking to form a particular people so that we might experience, as Pascal said, joy, 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 oh, tears of joy. That's the life that you and I are made for. And so what would it look like, as Abraham is, he's being formed and shaped into a particular kind of person. At this point in the story, we know that Abraham and Sarah, they're less than a year away from God providing them a child in their old age. Like, they're literally right on the cusp of that, which makes the story even seem all the more tragic. Like, he knows this, and why would he say his wife's his sister and allow her to be taken, and we'll get to that in a moment, but God is forming Abraham, making him into a particular kind of person. He's getting him ready for what he has for him in life. He's getting Sarah ready for what he has for her to become the woman that God created her to be so that they together can be the father and mother of this nation. There's this formation that's happening. And friends, you and I are being formed for joy. That doesn't mean that everything in your life is going to go perfectly according to plan. We know that right? We've all brought things in here this morning that are heavy, difficult, broken. It's not just the sin that's out there, the things that people have done to us, though that is included, but it's also the sin that's in here and the ways we sin against other people, ways that ultimately we sin against God. But God is using everything and he's forming us for the joy that He has for us, and we see this all throughout the Scripture. So, just be mindful of this as we get into this account in Genesis twenty. Just remember this: God is in the business of forming you into a particular kind of person. He wants joy for you. John fifteen eleven, Jesus says, "I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you." And this is not some generic kind of joy. It's Jesus' joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. That's what he's after. Paul would write in Romans 15, 13, now, it's like pronouncing this blessing, now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There are gonna be times where you're gonna to struggle to believe, fear's gonna come in, all these lies are gonna grip your mind and your heart. Just remember, may you be filled up with joy and hope and peace. The psalmist writes in Psalm 43, verse 4, Then I will go to the altar of God to God, my exceeding joy. He associates God in joy like this, God is the embodiment of joy, right? Like we're in his presence. And I will praise you with the lyre, O oh God, my God. Or Psalm 16 says in verse 11, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy, at your right hand are eternal pleasures. Think about that. How gracious is our God that he reveals the path of life? He's not kept that hidden. He's not saying, all right, best of luck. Figure it out. Let me know if you make it. He has revealed the path of life. And it's in his presence that there is abundant joy. So as we look at this account this morning, let's consider these things. How is God forming us for joy, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of our mess ups? Because as we're seeing here, right? Abraham does some great things at times, honors God, some good examples at times. But man, it should be pretty clear that he is also a colossal failure and he messes up big time. And yet God continues to use him. He's forming him. And he's asking us to consider, the scriptures this morning are asking us to consider, where are you looking for joy? Where are you hoping to find life? In the words of C.S. Lewis, he says this, right? We are half-hearted creatures "'fooling about with drink and sex and ambition "'when infinite joy is offered to us. "'And like an ignorant child "'who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum "'because he cannot imagine what is meant "'by the offer of a holiday or this vacation at the sea, "'we are far too easily pleased.'" So friends know this, God is forming us for joy, for happiness that's to be found in him. But what gets in the way, and this is what we're gonna look at this morning, is Abraham's fear. He is trapped by fear. He has succumbed to it. Once again, this is something that has been present with him throughout his story. It is still here in Genesis chapter 20. And so look with me at a couple of these verses. We'll look at verses one to two again. It just starts out, it says he's traveling around, right? He gets to this place called Gerar, and then Abraham said to his wife Sarah, all right, uh, said about his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. In just a moment, we will talk about this whole, she is my sister. What prompted that? Why would he say that? Like how is fear driving that? But just as an aside, sort of, for a moment, let's let's think about this. Like, um, this is a terrible, despicable thing that Abraham has done, right? And yet I also kind of wonder, because Sarah at this point is 89 or 90, all right? So I'm like, has she discovered the fountain of youth? Like, can you imagine? Abram's like, hey, and this king shows up, say you're my sister. I'm wondering if she's like, oh, honey, that, that's sweet. Like, listen, I'm 90. He's not interested in me for the harem, right? Like, it's gonna be okay, right? And yet somehow, maybe she's discovered the fountain of youth, I have no idea, all right? But she gets brought in, she's 90. Like, way to go, Sarah, okay? Just aside, I guess, but, right? <laughs> Like, what in the world is happening here? So she gets brought in. Now, if we go back, though, for a moment, she is my sister. We have to ask the question, I mentioned this a few moments ago, like, man, haven't we heard this before? And if you've read through the life of Abraham, or you've been here for part of this series, there should be, you should be answering, yeah, this sounds familiar. Because right after Abraham was called by God, given this amazing promise, says, come follow me. And seemingly he's doing the right thing. Like he leaves his household, doesn't have all his questions answered. God's like, go to the land, I'll show you. And he's like, cool, man. Just let me know when we're there. Right? Like, I mean, that's his response. And yet famine strikes the land. And back in Genesis 12, which we looked at the very beginning of this series, Abraham freaks out And though he's been promised land, now he's leaving the promised land and his wife, who is supposed to have like all these children to, to make into a great nation, right? Like he literally like hands his wife off to Pharaoh. Same situation plays out. Genesis chapter 12, 11 to 13. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, that's what she was called at the time, Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. So please say that you're my sister so it will go well for me because of you and my life will be spared on your account. As we learn here in Genesis 20, there's a partial truth here. All right. We don't have time to get into all that, but you heard his explanation, but we also can call that partial truth what it is. It's a lie. It's deception and it's rooted in Fear. Abraham is being selfish, he's being fearful, the God who has provided for him. I mean, Abraham should at least be able at this point to look back and say, all right, Genesis 12, when it happened, I gave her up, all right, I said she's my sister, Pharaoh took her, all right, I literally gave my wife away, not very good, not husband of the year, does all this, this stuff, and then God rescues her, and then on the way out, He is blessed. Abraham is literally loaded up with the wealth of Egypt for God just to remind him, you may mess up, but I'm still going to use you. I'm going to bless you. And don't you forget this. And yet here he is in Genesis 20, seemingly having forgotten all of it. And there's part of me that gets puffed up and just like, come on, man, really? Like it wasn't enough the first time you went ahead and did this a second time. And apparently it sounds like it was even just a repeated strategy that they had used And yet, if I'm honest, I need to stop and say, oh, the particulars are different, certainly. But there is a pattern of fear in my life. I think if you're honest, there's a pattern of fear in your life that there's this fear that just gets put on repeat. And I think it's worth asking this morning, where is fear on repeat in your life? We are called to fear God, and when we fear God, have this reverence of him, this awe of who he is, what he's done, it begins to rightly order things. It should actually fuel this confidence of who we are in the Lord, and then the things of life that are painful and difficult or you know, a bit unnerving, suddenly we have some perspective on those things when we fear the Lord. But what is happening here in the moment is Abraham, even though we'll look at this more closely in a minute, said, oh, I thought there was no fear of God. The only place there's no fear of God in the land is with Abraham's heart in this moment. And so he loses sight of this fear of God. But friends, I do this all the time. Fear is on repeat. I mean, just think for a moment. And I'm praying and trusting the Holy Spirit will bring to mind what needs to be brought to mind for you. But is there a fear of disappointing people? Is there a a fear of some circumstance, something that like maybe is marked on the calendar in some days ahead that you're just, I'm just dreading that day? Is there, is there fear around, how badly am I gonna mess up my, my kids, right, like in parenting? Is there, is there fear around a relationship? Is there fear around just having enough, being enough, fear around, will God provide? I mean, I know he did it the one time, but what about this? Or what about this time, like man, I brought this on myself. There's no one to blame but me. Will he still love me? Will he still care for me? Or have I just messed up one too many times? If we pay attention to our heart, we, like Abraham, for whatever reason, get stuck and we go back. It's the same fear, and it's playing out in this way in his life, but if I'm honest, things play out in my life on repeat a fear every single week, my wife would attest to this, she's serving at Crosspoint Kids, otherwise you'd hear a hearty amen from the front row, all right, is probably by, you know... I don't know if it's sometimes Thursday afternoon, sometimes it's Saturday morning, but there's this like, I got nothing. This sermon, it is going to bomb, it's the worst thing. Everybody should just leave the church right now. It's just terrible, right? And she'll be like, Can you just shut your mouth? You've been saying this for 13 years, right? Um, and and so I but there is there's something that comes up that's just like this insecurity and this fear that's like, I, I don't know, like what if there isn't anything to say? Now it's a silly lie that I believe, and I'm not up here being like, Well, they're all awesome. Why would I have not, you know, not have. Have immense confidence, but the reality is like there's this lie that comes in. Or what about fear? For me, sometimes that can be like, well, what if this leadership decision doesn't go right? I finished reading a book this week called "Managing Leadership Anxiety." Just a riveting title, right? Um, and um, and yet in it, they even talked about this thing that psychologists and counselors will talk about. That's this imposter syndrome, where you're just fearful that someday you might be found out just to be a fraud. And it may not be grounded, likely not grounded in reality at all, but there can be this lie, this fear that comes up like, oh, what if people knew the real me? I'm just an imposter. I'm a, I'm a fraud. I don't have anything to say. You're, like, all of these things can start to swirl together. I don't know what it is for you, but those are some for me at times. Where is fear on repeat? Where is it And repeat in your life? And then here's what ends up taking place. Whatever that thing is that we fear, whatever that thing is that has a hold of our heart and our mind that we give attention to, like inordinate attention to, whatever that thing is contributes to this false self. Maybe think about it this way, that what is happening when we're overly fearful of things, when we don't rightly fear God, we just fear other people or circumstances, fear begins to feed a false self. Your false self is this sort of constructed reality of whatever expectations or pressure maybe you put on yourself, I gotta be this sort of person, or I can't really be known, or I've gotta project or act like I've got it all together, perform in a certain way. And when we do that, whatever that thing is that drives us, that thing that's creating fear, we are feeding the monster that is the false self. And Jesus, friends, is inviting us, in. he's saying, no, 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 I love you. I've given you myself. I've given you my righteousness. There's a new self that's been created. Will you rest in that? Will you trust me? I've not given up on you. I will not let go. I'm going to continue to be faithful to you, even when you're faithless. Like, I've got you. There's nothing to fear, Abraham. There's nothing to fear, Jamie. There's nothing to fear. You put your name in the blank, right? That's the truth of the matter. But what ends up happening is we just feed our fear, begins to feed this false self. Thomas Merton spoke of it this way. He says this, "'Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, "'a false self, and we are not very good "'at recognizing illusions, least of all, "'the ones we cherish about ourselves, "'the ones we are born with and which feed the roots of sin. "'For most of the people in the world, "'there is no greater subjective reality "'than this false self of theirs.'" A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. And there is a very real enemy that wants us to get stuck in that place. Just keep feeding the false self. Keep living in fear rather than celebrating and remember, oh no, there's a God who loves me, who pursues me, that we see in Genesis 20, right? I mean, there's some things I think that Abraham legitimately needs to repent over, right? And yet, God's grace through and through, God's grace that would say to this king Abimelech, right? Say, like, hey, go get the prophet. You mean the guy who like basically sold out his wife? That guy? Yeah, he's my prophet. All right. Have him pray for you. Really? That's how this is gonna go? And yet, God uses the broken, the messed up. This is how he loves to work. And yet, we have to pay attention. There's this lie that we believe, this false self, this fear. And when we live according to that, we, if you're in Christ, friends, you are living in a way that's incongruent with ultimate reality. The ultimate truth is that you're in Christ. You've been made new. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. Like you've literally been buried with Christ. It's a whole new you. You don't have to live this way anymore. And yet we go back to the patterns. We go back to Egypt. We go back to the places of sin because it's familiar and God is inviting us on Now if we are trapped by fear, here's what we see in this text, that God in his kindness frees us up and he frees us by his love. Look with me at verses three to nine again, 14 to 18, and just sort of summarize some things that are taking place here. But it even starts out like God came to Abimelech. He didn't have to, he literally just killed him in his sleep, right? Instead, he gives him this terrifying nightmare that's full of grace. It's this interesting picture, right? But he, like, he comes to this man, this pagan man, this lost man. All right, he's not part of the family of God. He's not part of the you know like Abraham's lineage, anything like that. God came to Abimelech in a dream and said to him, "You're about to die." Like he warns him, what grace that actually is. He'd not approached her. He's like, "Lord, would you destroy?" And he begins to you know like. Kind of argue with, with God here. And in verse six, God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. And then notice the language. I have also kept you from sinning. It's not your strength that has done this. My grace, my love, I've kept you. And he doesn't say sinning against her, though that would be true. He says sinning against me. Because every sin ultimately is a sin against God. Our holy, righteous God. And he's like, I have prevented you from sinning against me and so he says i've not let you touch her now return the man's wife all right he's a prophet i've got him set up he's going to come pray for you all right what you don't know at this point in the story right but we hear later on is like anyone in abimelech's family his wife his servants all the females in that that area like their wombs had been closed they were going to be unable to have children but when abraham comes and prays the man who him and his wife cannot have children, is only going to be part of God's prayer of blessing to open up their wombs. I mean, this is an act of God's kindness and grace and God's love. God's love to Abraham. That here at the end, all right, it says in verse 14, Abimelech then took flocks and herds and male and female slaves, gave them to Abraham. Gave his wife Sarah back, said, Look, my land is before you, settle wherever you want, and here's a thousand pieces of silver, which is more than a lifetime's earnings for an average worker in that time, in that place. He's like, I'm giving you land, settle wherever you want, I'm giving you flocks and herds and servants, like, I'm blessing you. Abraham sins for the second time in the same way, giving away his wife, and the result is more blessings, more possessions, more money, more affluence, like all of that. That is not the model. Go out and sin, and you'll get rich, all right? That's not the call. But do you see, God doesn't need Abraham to be perfect, God works through imperfect people. God loves to free us from our fear by pursuing us in love. And if what we're seeing here in Genesis 20 is just this overabundance of love, how much more should we be freed by love knowing what we know? That Jesus has come and lived a sinless life, a life you and I were called to live, but we haven't. And he died in our place. He was punished in your place and in my place. He dealt with our sin and our rebellion and our shame. And he conquered Satan's sin and death by rising again on the third day. And he has ascended and he's ruling and reigning right now. And one day he's coming back to set everything right. We get trapped by fear. We give in to patterns of sin and fear and a false self. And God in his love and his kindness keeps pursuing, keeps reminding, we are freed, not on our own, not trying to get a plan together. If we try and do it in our own strength, we will only get more enslaved. We are freed when we stop and rest in the love of God. This is why John would write in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Some translation casts out fear. It's like, get this out of here. It literally has no place in the life of a child of God. Well, how? Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. What he's driving at is this. The punishment's already taken place, friends. If Jesus hadn't come and Jesus hadn't died in your place, in my place, if he wasn't punished in our place, yeah, then we should be fearful. And that false self is probably about the best that we got. Let's just live delusional lives and hoping that maybe it won't be as bad as we think. But the gospel frees us up to be honest. Oh, that's the false self. That's a lie. I'm not gonna believe that. There's this invitation to fear God, to worship God, because we have been set free. He has loved us. Jesus was punished in our place. So think about it. It doesn't mean in this form being formed for joy and this happiness in the Lord that everything is going to go well. That is not the promise on this side of eternity. But if we step back and realize, oh, that person, that circumstance, how this person responds, this thing not going according to plan, at the end of the day, including my own mess-ups, the ones I'm aware of, and the ones I'm not aware of, Things that I'll do in the future that are just a colossal failure. Here's the thing. At the end of the day, if I'm resting in, hey, Jesus was punished in my place, none of those things can touch me. None of those things throttle God's love for me. None of those things, in the end, result in me having to fear and project this false self. They, simply lead to a glad worship of Jesus. Thank you. You have freed me by your love. This is why Paul would write in Romans chapter eight, if God is for us, so he's posing this question, friends in your mess ups, in your screw ups and everything that goes wrong in life and the things that you've contributed to, if God is for us, who is against us? It literally doesn't matter. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? You hear the logic there? The most precious thing, the thing that God did to showcase the love that he has for you, is he gave his son for you and for me. So if he's already given that, he's not going to withhold anything. This frees us to not live in fear. We are freed by the love of God in Christ Jesus. And what we see taking place here in this text is a reminder that, for one, I mean, Abraham was called by God so that he would be a blessing to the nations, not just for him to live some amazing life, called to be a blessing. And early on in this text, what we're seeing is like, oh, he's not that. He didn't bring blessing to Abimelech. He brought curses. And yet, God intervenes. God pursues, shows his grace, shows his kindness, shows his love so that Abraham, by God's grace, can return to a man who can actually then be a blessing to this pagan king. And friends, you and I are freed by love to not live in fear anymore, not just so that we can kick back and be like, cool, I'm I'm good, but rather so that we, like the calling of Abraham, can be a blessing in our neighborhood, in our workplace. And God doesn't require you to have a perfect record. Jesus has it. He died in your place and he gave it to you. Right? Like, we don't do this on our own strength. God is simply looking for people that would surrender, would understand, would be honest with like, yeah, here's the false self. Here's the way I I live in in fear. Here's the the times I forget that God loves me and be reminded of the gospel. We have a great role to play as we remember that we've been freed by love. As we close, hear these words of Oswald Chambers. He says this, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. This is Abraham's story, and this is your story, and this is my story. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounce dependence on their natural abilities and resources. You may have unique talents and abilities, I'm sure you do. But those, at the end of the day, that's not what, God's not impressed with that. He's not looking at like, ooh, I really need this person. He's looking for the nobodies. People that are dialed into like, apart from the grace of God, I'm a dead man. But God has given me new life. He has taken this dead heart, this heart of stone, and He's made it a heart of flesh that would beat for King Jesus. He did that by His grace. I was trapped in fear, but He has freed me by His love. And when that begins to be the reality that we live with, not the false self, but that's the truest thing about us, we're then being formed into the kinds of people that will have a joy as we live on mission, being a blessing the world, the place, the community where God has put us. So let me pray for us as we continue in our our service. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness, your grace, your mercy is so abundant. Thank you that you've freed us by your love. When we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, you did this. When we were your enemies, you made us your friends. So we thank you, Jesus, for your work. Thank you that you continue to pursue us, that you continue to offer grace and forgiveness. May we remember the love that you have for us. And God, would you use us as broken, sinful nobodies to showcase, Jesus, who you are. You are the somebody. You're the one that deserves worship and attention, and that is where joy is to be found. And So form us in the kinds of people that remember where joy is found, May we repent of the false self and the fear and remind us of the love that you have for us. And would you do it for your glory and our joy? We pray in Christ's name, amen.